Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously, back on The New Aleph, Nathan had had a disappointing conversation with Soma, and Paul was trying to adapt to his new life by hunting down the man that had ended his old life. And now, Chapter 1 of Echelon. That did not go at all as expected. Nathan Sanchez stepped out of the dark forest and onto a dirt road ceilinged by stars, feeling tired, dirty, and frustrated. His hair was a mess, and he could smell his own pits through his heavy jacket. He had just had a conversation with the newest ruler of Pan, Aleph Soma Dan. It was a conversation that was supposed to have focused on her overly zealous attempts to crack down on a particular category of upper-class murderers. He was supposed to have told her that he wanted an alliance, but she needed to lessen her bordering on fascist tactics if he was going to be able to get his other allies to join forces. But he'd completely forgotten to bring up any of that. He wished he could blame his distraction on Soma's beauty. She was gorgeous, but women with red-orange skin and blazing red eyes weren't really his type. He was more into ladies that didn't literally have fire coursing through their veins. Soma was a person that naturally took control of conversations, and she'd wanted to talk about the universe. So they talked about how Maybar was no longer the computer simulation that Nathan had helped produce eight centuries ago. Maybar was just as mysterious and inexplicable to him, one of the Ta, the saviors of humanity, as it was to everyone else, its millions of residents with no knowledge of where it had come from. But that wasn't what made Nathan angry. What made him angry was that he'd lost. His associates, the Ta, had beaten him and killed his friends and locked him up in a deep sleep for centuries. They'd done it all to protect their dream of building a better world, one where they ruled with absolute authority. Nathan's only goal had been to give humanity a way out of that cage. But his conversation with Aleph Dan revealed that convincing people to leave was going to be a challenge. He looked down the road in the direction of Abensden and its train station. Sighing, he pulled out his key pen to make his dirt bike reappear but stopped as he remembered something Dan had mentioned. He was Ta and had vast resources available to him. And he needed protection. He should create a robot bodyguard with his key pen, considering he'd just stumbled into Dan's guards and could have been killed by them. He already knew what menu they were buried in, because it was a category that was full of things that upset him. Assistance. He suddenly felt cold and alone, standing by this dirt road and surrounded by huge pine trees. He could hear the wind blowing through the long needles. He drew in a long breath as he thought about the implications, remembering the conversations people had had early on in Maybar's construction. Under assistance, he could create what were actually slaves of hundreds of varieties. And, strangest of all, there was a slider at the bottom with maximum intelligence at one end and maximum effective lifespan at the other. The smartest would only live for three years. The least intelligent could live up to 20 years. 
probably something to do with them having to use space in the world can for their artificial souls. They're not really sentient, so it's okay. No different from VR porn, was what one engineer had told Nathan after he'd angrily said that he was adamantly against including on-demand sex partners in Maybar. He pushed the thoughts away, his desire increasing to get back to Earth, get away from this stupid hybrid universe where people could pretend they were gods, Begrudgingly, because it still felt too much like playing God himself, Nathan went to the bodyguard robot section and looked through the choices. Many of the customizations were the same here, including the intelligence slash lifespan slider. There were options for giving them bulky sunglasses for the upper half of the face or bandanas for the lower half, unsuccessful pretenses for trying to hide that they were robots. But aside from the internal customization and clothing, there were only five basic types. A huge, masculine human shape, a slender, feminine human shape, a small hawk shape, a large wolf shape that was like a smaller version of the giant cat robot that Girl by the Narthex had, and an average-sized, mean-looking human shape. Or no, there were six designs. There was another one on an extra menu page he almost missed. It was similar to the average-sized, mean-looking one, but had a yellow bar under it saying, Not Recommended. Unstable AI. It had angry metal brows over the beady disc-shaped eyes, and what looked like a gas mask for a mouth. Unlike the other five, it did not have any customizations. Or an intelligence-slash-lifespan slider. It did, however, say corduroy in small text below the warning. That had been on his invisibility gadget, the one that Aleph Dan had just stolen from him, meaning Tanaka had probably designed this robot. Nathan did not have to think twice. He chose that one and had it appear next to him, with the air cracking. But instead of just standing there, silent, it immediately turned to him. Nathan took a step back without thinking. It bowed slightly and slowly, Nathan frowned and cleared his throat, not sure what to say, and definitely made uncomfortable by this subservient introduction. Uh, hello. It straightened up, sort of. It left its head bent forward and its shoulders a little hunched. It was not new and shiny. It was rough and worn in with a patina on its metal body. It had no shirt and its arms looked skinny compared to how bulky the shoulder armor was. It had cargo pants with a hip holster strapped on the left that held a normal-looking pistol. Normal to Nathan, anyway. One of those boxy square pistols that took a clip. It turned its head to stare at Nathan with its two golden circle eyes looking out from under an angry brow. It somehow looked both bored and terrifying. Nathan stuffed his pen in a jacket pocket. Huh. Not exactly subtle. It answered with a deep, lightly digitized voice that seemed unnaturally clear, considering he looked like he was wearing a gas mask. It also had a hint of a BBC radio accent, but with a not-so-subtle tone of impatience. I am the best bodyguard you could hope for. I do not need to be subtle. Nathan raised an eyebrow. I guess people in Pan already know about robots, so you shouldn't be a problem. We'll have to figure out something else if we go back to Prometheus, though. Well, um, I'm Nathan. We can talk while we're on the way, I guess. I need to find some friends in Chrysoprase. The robot turned around, looking north, 
as if he knew where he was and knew where Chrysoprase was. Nathan noticed that he had a machete strapped to his back in a heavy leather sheath. I guess I need to give you a name. I am Corduroy Body Armor 1, Series H. You can call me whatever you like. Ha. Nathan snorted a laugh. B-A-O-H, huh? B-A, as in Baracus? Or Bayo? No, let's do Bosco. Bosco will be fine. Sir. Cool. Uh, let's go. Nathan examined this robot, wondering if he was not recommended because of his personality. There was an air of professionalism mixed with impatience that made Nathan not really worried. Tanaka always knew what he was doing and would never publicly share a product he wasn't sure was top quality. Nathan took his pen out of his pocket again and brought up his bike and had it appear with a crack right there on the road. He was about to look through the menus to see if he should make a bike for Bosco, but then heard someone yell at him from the other side of the road. Hey, you! Nathan and Bosco turned to the forest bordering Dan's property. There was a small but sturdily built woman, probably a stone preyed because of her gray skin, standing next to a tall, muscular man. The woman was holding an axe that looked like it was made of stone, and the man was carrying a pistol that looked like a smaller version of the gun on Bosco's chest. His other hand was stuffed in his jacket pocket. For a moment, Nathan was distracted by how cool the woman looked. Yeah, she was probably going to threaten to end his life or rob him, or both, but her pure white short hair and military-cut jacket looked really good on her. Bosco took a step toward them. But the man pulled his hand out of his pocket to hold up a little box with a button on it. Ah, stay right there. Have some questions for friends of Aleph Dan. We know you just left our house, and we know you're an Aleph. Nathan squinted. I don't know if she and I are friends yet. The cool-looking woman smiled. Kill the robot. The man pressed the button, and the box sparked. Nathan's bike sparked and smoked. At the same moment, the gun on Bosco's chest smoked. The man and the woman, however, stared at Bosco and their smiles fell. How are you still working? Bosco, fast as a flash, drew the pistol from his left holster and shot. Boom, boom, both of them each in the foot. They fell to their knees in pain. Nathan's hand shot up to cover his ears, surprised by how loud normal guns really were. Battery killer. Very expensive. The robot absently tapped the large smoking gun strapped to his chest with the smaller conventional pistol in his hand. Well, I also carry the cartridge firearm. Bosco put that pistol away and drew the machete. He rested the not-so-sharp tip against the chin of the man. Throw away your gun. The man did so. I haven't seen anyone use one of you pieces of shit in years. Bosco didn't move. Explain your purposes to my employer. I ain't explaining. Bosco pressed a button on the machete's handle. The air echoed with an odd, repeating thud as the blade turned into a wireframe of itself. It glowed a bluish white. The man looked down at it, screamed, and scampered backward away from it. Nathan frowned and took a step forward. Wow, what is that? The man looked up at Nathan in fear, then at his companion, who looked more angry than afraid, but she was shaking especially as Bosco pointed the otherworldly blade at her. Yes, Bosco said. You've seen one of these before, haven't you? 
Explain yourself now and you won't have to find out what mine does. We were just, she started, holding up her hands. We were just trying to find out about Aleph Dan. Bosco looked at Nathan. She's lying. I believe they planned on kidnapping you to ransom you to the Aleph they mentioned. This Aleph Dan. The man frowned at hearing that. Nathan figured that Bosco's assumption was a bit of a stretch, but the reaction to the guests did reinforce it. Nathan grumbled as he considered the situation. I don't know. I think they're just bounty hunters looking for potential soul offenders. I'm unaware of current criminal trends. I'll need some catching up. Bosco took a step toward the woman and continued in his impatient voice. I can kill them and make sure no one will find evidence that they were ever here. If you want... Sir. No! yelled the woman and the man at the same time. Nathan frowned. No, that's fine. And you don't have to keep calling me sir if you don't want to. It doesn't seem like you enjoy it very much. Bosco's posture slacked slightly as he pushed the button on his machete again and it turned back to normal. He made a sort of snorting sound as he looked down at the woman. Lucky you. Nathan looked at Bosco, then at his two prisoners. He considered borrowing some clothes from them to do up Bosco, make him look less scary, especially the woman's jacket, which he now noticed had a row of colorful metal pins going along the right lapel. But that armor on Bosco's shoulder would get in the way of a jacket. Nathan then got an idea. He smiled and squatted down in front of the woman. Can I borrow one of your pins? She just held her snarl. Nathan reached over and removed a bright red and green pin that was shaped like a geranium. I'm going to put this on you. Nathan came up to Bosco and put the geranium pin on one of the leather straps of his chest holster. The robot shifted weight from one foot to the other, as if feeling embarrassed, but he didn't resist. This should make you a tiny bit less terrifying. It should at least confuse people. Bosco looked down at the flower pin a moment, as if in shock, then nodded and replied with a weaker voice. Yes, sir. Nathan turned and looked at the smoking cylinder that the man had used to burn out Bosco's big gun. Did they break my bike with that thing? Yes, they did. Nathan sighed and stood up. He had liked his dirt bike. He walked toward the pair of muggers slash kidnappers. Where's your transportation? can still go get him. The way Hewn stood, hunched over with his arms crossed, he looked shorter and even more stone-like than usual. He wasn't at all happy about Soma letting Nathan go. He can't be that far away. Sorensen, lifting her chin and looking down at Hewn with uncharacteristic impatience, spoke loudly. I believe he's more useful as an ally than some token of favor to exchange with the assembly. Soma sat at her desk in the office on the east side of her house, which was quickly turning into a government office building. It was late at night. She needed to get out of her uniform, wash off the sweat of the day, and get into bed. I agree. Also, the assembly would have one fewer reason to keep me alive. Hewn grumbled. Once they find out you let him go, there will be huge consequences. They were already irritated at her. It was nothing but a matter of degrees. As she amassed a staff here at her house to help the mayors manage the sole offender roundup, she knew she was shifting power away from the pan-assembly members to herself. 
But because they were lazy and she was a green, hungry upstart, and what she was doing mostly just qualified as grunt work, they tolerated it. But Soma could feel the strings on her. First, the assembly let her clean up the soul offender problem they'd been too tentative to address. Then they wanted her to use her new connections to help them find this rogue member of the Taw. But that rogue Taw, Nathan Sanchez, also wanted to use her. Maybe more as a partner and less as a pawn, but still. Everybody with their agendas. Do we know if Taw Sanchez has made any alliances with anyone else? Both Hune and Sorensen shook their heads. Sorensen looked at Hune, then back at Soma. I can talk to the immortals allied with you. They've likely heard some rumors. Soma nodded. We need to find out as much as we can. So, I should probably get to know you. Please, tell me about yourself. Sir. Bosco said without taking his eyes off the little square window leading to the back of the funny, bug-legged, flying van. The poorly whitewashed branding on its side indicated it had once been a roof repair vehicle before the two kidnappers had acquired it. The kidnappers that were now tied up in the back of it. Don't you want me to fill you in on what's going on in the world? There's a bunch. People being murdered for their soul space in the Assassin. Murderous bounty hunters. Nathan, driving the bizarre craft as best he could, tapped on the window to indicate the two bound, gagged, and hooded goons in the back. Contention over Aleph Dan's methods? Bosco didn't move. He'd roughly dressed the bullet wounds on each of the goons' feet. The damage didn't look that serious, but the entry and exit wounds had been bleeding pretty badly. Hopefully they made it to Chrysoprase pretty soon. The problem was that Nathan's worry had been correct, and this craft was not fast. They were puttering along just above the trees, using whatever sorcery this thing used to fly, at what couldn't be more than 70 miles an hour. There wasn't a speedometer. There wasn't even an altimeter. There was only a lever for speed and another lever for height, so he could really only guess. The single navigation instrument was a compass on the dash that Nathan looked at occasionally so he could keep going generally north. There was, however, a levitation tonic health meter from green to red that was close enough to red to give Nathan a sinking suspicion that this flying van would start sinking soon. The rapid rate that the needle had been dropping gave Nathan a feeling that the legs folded up below it were actually the primary source of propulsion. The flying ability was probably just for when the crew was doing roof work, and he was pretty sure those bug legs would be even slower. Bosco shook his head. I should know my charge first. Nathan immediately realized he hadn't told anyone his story since being woken up. He made up some lies here and there, loosely derived from the truth, but there was no point in hiding anything from Bosco, because if he was going to be his bodyguard and be with him at all times... He would figure out everything eventually anyway. Well, I was born April 15th, 2005. Lived in various cities around San Bernardino County, California. I graduated from UCLA in 23 with a degree in political science. After a few lucky accidents, I ended up as the city treasurer of Hesperia. Then went back to school to get my master's. After about, what was it? 
10 years on the LA City Council. I campaigned to become mayor of LA, but you're Nathan Sanchez. There was surprise in Bosco's voice. Nathan nodded. The robe ta. I didn't recognize you at first. I know everything about you. Nathan was a bit unnerved by that. He opened his mouth to say so, but something hit the dividing wall between the driver cabin and the cargo compartment in the back. He looked through the window and saw the woman kicking at the wall with her good foot and trying to yell something. I can make sure she can't do that anymore, if you wish. Sir. Nathan shook his head and put his eyes back on the road. Nah, let her wear herself out. Well, now you just realized you know everything about me. What should we talk about now? Well, more accurately, I know everything about your past. I do not know anything current. I'm trying to get everybody back to Earth, but now it's about four times as impossible as I already knew it would be. Bosco looked away from Nathan and looked down through the glass floorboards at trees silently passing underneath. Nathan watched him, wondering if he'd been programmed to believe one of the two false histories about Maybar's origin. Or, if he did know the true origin, if he was programmed to not talk about it. But the robot broke the silence. You are the only Ta in Maybar, retaining your seat on the assembly. It is your right to return humanity to Earth, if you so wish, regardless of the obstacles imposed by lesser men and women, which is everyone else compared to you. Nathan laughed. You are the only person in all of Maybar who believes any of that. I will do all that I can to guarantee that you succeed. I can think of no greater honor than to do so. Nathan smiled. There was an itch of guilt at letting Bosco continue in this silly hero worship, and an itch behind that itch that if he didn't try and correct Bosco of this, Nathan wasn't much better than any Aleph creating a mindless slave. But it was comforting to finally have someone behind him, and he didn't have the heart to reprimand the robot. Thank you, Bosco. Hey, everybody. It is so good to be back. The podcast should be up and live on a whole bunch of feeds right now. I'm doing a lot of things differently this time so that I'm less likely to burn out. I'm using a site called Anchor to host the show now, and that's just one of the many things that's minimizing the amount of steps I have to do each time I post something. Part of that means I probably won't do as many of the fun fake ads for friends stuff here in the middle of the show like I did before. It also means I'm only going to do the break here in the middle and I won't do an outro at the end. So that said, thank you so much for continuing to hang out for book two. The Worlds of Maybar podcast is written, performed, and edited by me, Andy Wright. And you can follow me online at A. William Wright. All music in this episode is from the album Into the Dark by the band The Restitution. We're about to get back into chapter one, but right before that, we'll let you know that chapter two will be dropping November 2nd. Yes, the day before voting day. So a good day to finally fill out your mail-in ballot, because if you're like me, you probably won't have done it yet. Anyway, back to the show. Paul was hunting. His range was the city he'd been murdered in, Lutenia, 
For three weeks, he had been running around in circles, trying to find his killer. Week one was figuring out that he should stick to nighttime. There were fewer smells at night. Here in Lutenia, even more so because then the land breeze pushed back on the briny ocean air. Week two was finding out how his nose worked. Week three was actually figuring out where to go. It was something to do, so they didn't have to think about Susie. Three weeks of concentrating on his sense of smell in a way he'd never done before. It was like living his life with bare hands after a lifetime of wearing gloves. It had been equally frustrating and exhilarating. Every third or fourth night, he would track down the sulfur smell. Every night, he would find hints of it here and there. And every night, he would lose it or get distracted by the smell of another murderer in another part of the city. Or he'd get thrown off by whiffs from the water treatment plant on the edge of town. But he kept going out and kept picking up pieces. He had a fuzzy map of the city in his brain with dozens of little arrows all over it. Tonight, the weather was being finicky and getting in his way, occasionally sending a blast of soggy sea air over him and fogging his focus. But all those arrows had narrowed his search down to a 5 by 5 block area. During the day, he slept in the NHM center barracks and tried to track down news articles on his murderer. He went out into the desert to lift weights and to run alone, not wanting anyone to see him using his unnatural strength. He didn't seek out his family. He hadn't sought out Susie since that first time. He couldn't try again. He was still too mortified by that first encounter when she'd turned away from him not believing he was who he was. How do you convince someone who already attended your funeral that you were back and not some imposter? He knew that he really didn't care this much about finding his murderer. It was an interesting exercise, but he didn't care. He was welcome for something to do, anything other than sitting around thinking of all the reasons why even though Susie was right here in this city, he would probably never see her again. After spending months and nearly dying, crossing across two different universes to get back to her. At this moment, Paul stood next to a laundromat nestled in the corner of a quaint little strip mall, one surrounded by a few nicer apartment complexes. Just past those, middle to upper class houses scattered out across the flat area of one of Lutenia's more affluent neighborhoods. Not where one might expect a serial killer to be living, but that was where the scent was pointing him. Paul held a walking cane with both hands, twisting his fingers against the smooth wood. His query scent swirled and twisted back and forth from this area, which was partly why it had taken so long to narrow down. The target kept moving around, leaving trails all over the city, possibly seeking out new victims. But the trails all led back here. If Paul had to start a search like this all over, he was confident he would find him in a few days, not three weeks. He was better at focusing his nose and was better at understanding the way the sense distributed, how the wind and weather affected them. And, just as he thought that, a faint breeze shot a burst of the bitter, sulfur scent into his face. He tapped the rubber stopper of his cane mutely against the concrete sidewalk and headed toward where it had come from. He faked a light limp, 
mostly so he wouldn't look so awkward carrying a cane around. Once he was out of the light of the strip mall, he walked normally and only half-heartedly moved the cane in rhythm with his legs. He'd considered carrying a baton or a baseball bat or brass knuckles, but all those would either draw attention or would have to be hidden, forcing him to waste time readying them if he ran into trouble. He regretted not making the financial sacrifice to go to an LWA school while he was back in Pan. Those were much harder to find in Prometheus because it was illegal to advertise that a school taught Kesho martial arts. Not that he could afford to attend one now anyway, but he could spend a hundred shekels on a compressed bamboo cane. He wanted to be ready for anything at any moment. He was a bonded man with a wasted condition going up against another bonded man with a wasted condition. Paul was probably stronger, but his opponent was more experienced and not afraid to kill. Paul wasn't sure if he was or not, though he probably had killed at least one of those people he'd fought back at the Narthex. He'd never know now, because his friend Aubrey had made sure all of the wounded enemies were dead before they'd left. Aubrey, who had been a good friend and had answered all his dumb questions without any judgment, had not turned out to be the kind of person he'd thought she was. She had even told him how to protect himself from having his mind, quote-unquote, read. He wasn't reading your mind, she'd said. He was listening to your sub-vocalizations, the vibrations of your vocal cords that happen when you talk to yourself in your head without actually speaking. It's usually a wind previed skill, but you can get it by being bonded and wasting conditions. There's a simple way to block someone from using it on you, but it takes concentration. Paul stopped as he came to an intersection. There. He knew it was the house on the street to the left, four down on the south side, the one green with white trim. You sing a song in your head. Aubrey had leaned in and lowered her voice as she'd said that. Honest to God, it works. It pushes your actual thoughts to a lower level, below what would be sub-vocalized. And all they can tell is that you've got a song stuck in your head. Or actually, you can just sing the song out loud and that will work too. You might as well because they can hear you coming either way. Paul took in a deep breath and mumbled the only song he could think of right now, probably because it fit his mood. I see a red door and I want it painted black. Hey, Dan, said the slow voice of Travis, who had become Soma's office supervisor, sort of. Some of the Kaze cult members here on Retainer have been talking. Soma turned to the door of the widow's watch. She'd come back up here a couple hours ago to sit alone in the cold dark, looking up at the stars, thinking, after having given up on trying to fall asleep. She took a moment to pull herself out of her melancholy stupor before she spoke. What is it? He sighed. They're angry about you letting Ta Sanchez go. She took two more full breaths before even moving. I'm not surprised. Tell them that if they disagree with my methods, then they're free to go. I don't need pettiness. He shrugged. Fair enough. I assume that they're worried that if the assembly finds out. You know how to deal with them. I'm going into my office. And sending the new instructions to Pan's mayors in the morning. Travis's eyes widened. 
tomorrow already. Tell the angry Kaze members if you want, Soma smiled. Maybe it will confuse them and they won't know which thing to be angry about. I look inside myself and see my heart is... Paul stopped singing. He stood outside the house. The lights were on. There were people milling about inside. Occasionally he'd hear someone laughing. He couldn't keep singing. This couldn't be the right house. But he went up the steps to the front door anyway. He felt weak and numb and his hands were shaking, but he continued walking forward and he knocked on the front door. The murmur of voices inside vanished. The door opened and a middle-aged man with a receding hairline looked up at him. His eyes widened as he took in Paul's bulk before he put on a polite smile. Can I help you? Paul felt even more weak and empty. The man reeked. The stench was overpowering. But it wasn't the right smell. Now that he was here, with the target finally standing before him, he was sure of that. It was of sulfur and sweat, but not Paul's sweat. Just similar. He'd wasted weeks hunting down the wrong man, but he'd still found a killer a killer that he knew nothing about. An idea came to him. It would be tricky, but it would be worth a shot, and better than throwing away three weeks of running in circles. You're coming with me, now. What? The man's face fell. Paul made sure to reach out and grab his arm before the man could run inside the house. I know what you did. What? Let go of me. Paul did not move. He stood there, holding the man, waiting. We'll call the police, Paul nodded, accepting whatever may happen when they did that. He zoned out as everything played out. Eventually, someone did call the police. Maybe the man's wife, maybe one of his kids, maybe a neighbor overhearing the yelling. Through it all, Paul just stood there holding the man's arm. He stood there holding him for at least half an hour, more than one person had yelled at Paul during this time, demanding that he leave. Someone had punched him on the arm, but it hadn't hurt. The man was crying, and Paul was holding him up by the time two police officers came in on bulky motorcycles. The wife was sitting by the front door, crying as the police came up and put their hands on their hips, close to their guns. Excuse me, sir. Please let the man go. Paul nodded. I'm making a citizen's arrest. This man confessed a murder to me. Murder? The wife said it in a half laugh, half whimper. What are you talking about? Now everyone, the man, the wife, the two police officers, were frozen and still like him. The wife's voice calmed. That's why he's been acting. Paul had no idea if this would work, but he didn't really care. He wasn't even sure if he cared if these police officers arrested him. He wasn't even sure if they could charge him with anything because he hadn't hurt the man. In the continuing silence, where the wife stared at the wall and seemed to be searching her memory for any vague reason for any of this to happen, Paul looked the man in the eye. An idea came to him. You can't escape it forever. Ursi knows. Ursi? The man frowned. 
then smiled at the threat of a god from children's fairy tales watching his secret deeds. You kidding me? Are you sure? It was the wife. Everyone looked at her. One of the officers gestured at the group. Ma'am, who are you asking that question to? Paul took a closer look at the officers again. Their hands were more relaxed. They looked confused and curious. The wife waved a hand in the air, frowning. I was asking this man if my husband actually confessed, because I thought what happened was an accident. One of the officers folded his arms as both of them leaned in. Paul stepped back. His focus faded out as the wife spoke, and the man occasionally denied the questions she threw out. One of the officers took out a bulky pen reader and recorded the conversation. The man was a P.E. teacher. He'd been having an affair with a high school student. There was something about drugs in the student's system. Something about a beating. The family had elected to take her off of life support after two weeks. You said it was an accident. You said she'd OD'd. Something about the comment pulled Paul back to the moment. His mind worked backwards, concentrating on the smells, then on the details then the sum of the parts somehow created a whole picture. It didn't make sense how he could know what he knew. He turned to the wife and spoke with a drowsy voice. It was premeditated. He broke the affair off at first, but that made her angry. He lured her to an abandoned bar, promising to get back together with her. Then he he tried to make it look like an accident, but he... Paul couldn't go on. It was all incredibly clear in his mind, and he had no idea how he could know all that. Again, he was surrounded by silence. The man's face went white, and he went limp. He lowered himself down and sat on the floor. There was more talking, and the police called in backup. The extra officers arrived in a quad-rotor hover car. The blades of the vehicles making a horrendous racket that woke up the whole street. If they weren't already all awake from watching the show, Paul was asked to come in for questioning. He agreed. Blocks of hours went by, and at some point, he was sitting in the same police station he'd been in three weeks ago. Three weeks ago, when he'd come in here to find out information about his murderer, but had found nothing. It felt like no time had passed. For a moment, he wondered if the three weeks had been a dream. Maybe none of it had happened. Maybe he just imagined it all while standing in front of the board of wanted posters, while looking for a photo, for any details about the man who had killed him. Stevens, Paul frowned. He didn't remember telling them his name, but he didn't really remember any of the last half of the night anyway. He looked up to where the voice had come from. It was that officer he'd followed down the hall three weeks ago, or maybe five minutes ago. He'd looked just as hard and grumpy. He was carrying a thermos steaming with coffee. He just jerked his head to gesture for Paul to follow. For some reason, reality seemed to return in that moment. He followed the man who said his name was Shackleton, and that he was a liaison for the MOA. Paul wondered if he was being taken to get locked up in a cell. He turned a corner, passed the wanted board, then another corner, then reached the lobby. Then his heart stopped as he saw something. He saw Susie standing there, her hands pressed into her coat pockets with the fabric stretched taut. Tears were pouring down her face. He took a step toward her. Then in a blur, she was in his arms and holding him so tight 
The ribs he'd broken back in the narthex ached. He held her just as tight as she sobbed. A mix-up? She said after the breathing calmed down. They said your dead body was a mix-up? The grumpy-looking officer standing behind Paul, Shackleton, made some sort of grunt that might have been a laugh. It's him, all right. He looks like he gained a hundred pounds of muscle, but it's him. The face of the victim we thought was him was pretty out of whack. You were trying to tell me the other day, she said with her voice muffled against his shirt. I didn't... I didn't want to... Paul looked down at her, frowning. He whispered with his lips brushing against her ear. It's a long story. One, said Shackleton at full volume, leaning down by Paul's ear nearly as closely, that you will be telling me in full.